Welcome to School of Everything Else. Stranger Things, Part 2. Welcome back to our two-part show about Stranger Things Season 1. Obviously, if you missed the first part, listen to that, and both of these shows are fully spoilerific. I'm Alex Shaw, and this is my co-host, Sharon Shaw. Hello. We never introduce each other. We don't. No. We really we should. We should. People don't even know who's talking. No. <laughs> Welcome. It's, it's a blind guess, really. Welcome back to the show, Miss Laura Kate Dale of Let's Play Video Games and Podquisition. Thank you for having me back. I'm glad to know that I didn't like outstay my welcome in the first two-hour word spree. I don't think it's possible not. for you to. So, <laughs> uh, also welcome back, Miss Debbie. Uh, is it, hang on, like you guys are getting married this year, or you're already married? Or we already got married. We got married last October, actually. I thought so. Yes. So, but you keeping the name Debbie Morse? Yes. Okay. Yes. I. It's a pain in the ass to change the name. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that is fine. I just I didn't want to misname you the husband and wife duo that I always thought you were anyway. So, and <laughs> Debbie Morse of Sequentially Yours, welcome back. Hello. Hello. And we've had to lose Alistair for this second part, which is a great loss because he's brilliant. But we have gained two new voices: Debbie's other half, and from the sounds of it, husband, Mister Karu Nagisa, <laughs> also of Sequentially Yours. Hi there. Hello. And author of Unofficial Stranger Things Guide Notes from the Upside Down, available right now in hardback and very soon in paperback, as well as many other Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Who related books and other, like I went, like my hand got tired going through your back catalogue, uh, which, w sorry, that sounds terrible. <laughs> which, well, you know, it, it's, it's how I break up my days of typing as well, because John was just writing is, is dull, and so I'm glad that. Actually, I, I, I feel comfortable that I can now admit that because you've mentioned it. And it's nice. Which we will get him to talk about in a bit. We are very proud to welcome to the show Mr. Guy Adams. Mm, who, who, who immediately lowers the tone. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I did it first, so you're, you're off the hook. Yeah, Hello, Guy. I did run with it. Now, we're going to start where we left off at the very end of episode three, Holly Jolly, when the body of Will is apparently discovered in the quarry. I really like the um, the whole end of episode three, beginning of episode four. We arc we get with the kids, where Eleven has been making this whole point of the kid is still alive, and then his body gets fished out of a river, and understandably, all of all of his friends are like, "Hey, why did you tell us our friend was still alive?" and the whole moment we get with Eleven where she tunes into the into the, the radio and manages to get to tune into him singing Should I stay, stay or Should I Go? 
I thought that whole exchange was really beautifully done. Like, I love everything about the anger from those child actors, the way that that exchange is handled where one of the kids has to radio the others and go, hey, I know you don't want to believe me, but I'm pretty sure our friend who we just saw pulled out of a lake is alive, even though you weren't here when the proof happened. For me, the, the cell that makes this work is that the body being fished out of the lake is so unexpected. Like, mm. it, to me at least, like, that caught me completely off guard. It's really well acted, and I'm going to be honest, I wasn't convinced that that he was still alive after I saw his body fished out of the, the lake. I thought, are we getting messages from something that's not him? Are we getting messages from the monster or something? I, To me, there was enough mystery in that. Or from the way. dead hit. I mean, that yeah, been, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, there was enough of a mystery of this body's just been fished out the river. I now don't know what's going on that I was okay with seeing them fight with each other because the conflict I felt was earned. I felt that, like, telling telling this group of protagonists, hey, your friend is still alive, oh, wait, that's their body being pulled out of the lake, I think that if there's ever a justification <laughs> for the infighting in of the group... I oh, yeah. No, no, it, no you're, you're completely right. Don't don't get me wrong. It, it, is, it is earned. And, and, but I, I think it's just... I think it's a streak in me. I, I suppose it comes, it's almost a childhood thing of whenever we step into any form of fantastical fiction as a child and now as an adult, I am, I am often irrationally impatient for the point where everyone accepts the weirdness so that we can just relish the weirdness. The, the utterly realistic and natural cynicism is something that there's always been a streak of it that goes, oh, I, I, I won't half love it when the parents accept the house is haunted. Oh, God, I'll be so pleased when, when his wife, you know, well, actually, you know, in horror movies, when her husband finally accepts that the house is haunted. It's those, it, it's it's a streak in me. It's it's not it's not I, a valid criticism of the, of the, of the oh, show. I think uh, it is a valid criticism of the show in as much as all of these kids who are doubting Eleven when she says that their friend is alive, they've all seen her multiple times close the door with her mind. And mm. they're still questioning whether she knows what she's on about. Like, well, there's a certain degree of reason to be annoyed by that. <laughs> that's what is. I, I really I... love about that particular sequence, is that it sets up a theme where we don't get a whole lot of uh, inside of Eleven's head, so Mike ends up being the reflection of her doubts. You'll notice whenever she goes over, whenever she does something wrong or goes over the top, or it seems like she has screwed up in some way, it's Mike. The one, Mike is the one who is asking, "What's wrong with you?" So this is, I think, it's less the, it's symbolically what's going on is the kids are reflecting her own doubts about what she's doing because she doesn't really know what she's doing. This is fairly new to her. Oh yeah, are you sure she's got any doubts? I, I, I see her as, as very. Um, God, I'm, I'm, God, you've invited an argumentative old sod onto your show. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I see Eleven as this, this this sort of absolute force of nature, really. That that is, is has no um, doubts as to her opinions or correctness and things. Perhaps a, a frustration that others don't understand it through her inability to communicate properly and, and so on and so forth. But mm. I'm not sure she ever doubts she's right. I, I, I think don't this... think... Oh, go on. 
I, well, I was just going to say, I think there's a there's an element of not not doubt in what she knows, um, but doubt in herself. She she doubts sort of who she is and and how she relates to people. And I think the the tail end of episode three for me is a really crucial point in this. And and one of the things that I was talking about yesterday, um, Guy and Kara, obviously because you weren't here, was the how well in this show they set up. Um, parallels between scenes where you've got something happening and then it's mirrored in an, in the next scene or, or one close to and the the tail end of episode three for me where you get that moment where um they find will's body and um you have jonathan holding his mother on the roadway and then it cuts to mike being held by his mother and this interaction of of the generations and how comfort is supposed to work and how it is a two-way thing obviously the the levels of balance are not the same because more of the comfort is coming from Karen for Mike and Jonathan is providing more comfort for Joyce than he's necessarily receiving but the fact that that comes after you've had this scene where um uh, where Eleven is sort of lashing out at the the guards and then Brenna comes in and picks her up and I, I mentioned yesterday about that the the agony if you like of an adult deliberately manipulating those emotions out of a child to get what they want mm. out of them and that is very stark when you then compare it to the natural parent-child relationships at the, the end of the episode so I think for me it's it, if there is, if there are doubts in her, it's about who she is, not what she knows or what she can do. And, that, yeah. and you're absolutely right. That makes her an incredibly powerful character because it makes her unpredictable. Mm. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that we did point out, like, she seems to have no knowledge of the outside world besides the couple of days that she's been hiding in the basement. And I think there's a certain degree of, She's not had interactions with people her own age. She's not got the context for life outside of that sort of science lab setting. I think there are definitely some doubts that come in there from her sort of being uncertain because she's been displaced from what she knows. Mm. And I think there's also something to be said for not necessarily doubting her decisions or her knowledge of the things that she feels she knows, but there is definitely a hesitancy that seeps into some of her actions. And I think a good example of that is her hesitancy to use the radio to try and tune in, to try and tune in Mike, because I think there, there is some degree of, she knows that her nose bleeds when she does stuff like this. She knows that this is something that is putting her at some degree of risk, mm. but that she also knows that like, she's slowly working out this is what i need to do to fix and help this social situation which might be new territory for her having not had time to socialize with her own peers i guess yeah yeah what about uh, how joyce progresses in this episode because obviously her panic is getting more and more intense at this point and with good reason Mm. she's it's a, it's a really nice progression from what we talked about in those first few episodes where Initially, she she's very certain that her son is still alive, but the, the evidence is fairly thin to that effect. By this point, she's 
She's got real reason to believe her son is still alive in spite of the dead body she's just seen. Like, she's she's had her chance to communicate with her son through the lights, who's, like, spelled things to her. She's seen the body that doesn't seem to have the birthmark it's supposed to have. She knows something's wrong, and she really does lean into this idea of, I know that I can't explain this to anyone in a way that sounds realistic or like I've not lost my mind, mm. but I don't care. I will power on until I find my child because I know my child's out there. I think there's there's more justification for that certainty by this point. I think one thing that that uh, kind of runs through this section is this this theme of the sense of drowning, mm. um, and you can see it, or at least the the way I interpreted it you can see it in Joyce's panic um they they do this wonderful thing with the sound quality when Hopper tells her about Will where the other sound gets pulled out and everything sounds hollow like she's underwater um and I and that made me think of the the fact that Will is sort of in this underside world trying to find his way out which is like drowning and trying desperately to get to the surface yeah when when he's banging on the wall and both the AV club and his mother can hear him he sounds very distant, like he's shouting through something, and I very much got a visual image of like him like in a sinking ship banging on a window or something. There's this sort of echoey let me out, I I you know, I'm I'm drowning quality to it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, the sense of, you know, elsewhere that the show creates is is very tangible. It's very, it's 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 you know, one of its its greatest assets, I think, that that you know wonderful notion of a place that is so close and yet immeasurably far away um, i think one of the best ways they do that to be honest is the uh, the sparingness with which they show you the upside mm. down mm. absolutely yeah i mean i think if, if anything we could have almost got away with even less um but yeah something's always well, I was going to say something can be more potent if not visualised, but and I'm reminded of Cronenberg, who, when discussing <laughs> Videodrome, said, how am I supposed to uh, suggest a vagina in James Wood's chest? Uh, sometimes you do have to show things. But when you're trying to deal with something that's so other as the Upside Down, um, yeah, less is definitely more. Because I, I think they do a really good job with the visual we get in the house, where like Joyce is tearing that wallpaper apart, and we see this sort of tough to understand almost almost organic wall that her son's on the other side of i think it's like it, it's enough of a hint at the nature of the 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 under underneath underside as this place that is very very otherworldly without actually showing you what it's like to be in there and keeping that mysterious and we get such a small sight of it before it's pulled back. It, it is very effective. It, it seems like a, a membrane, almost. Mm. Yeah, everything about it seems sort of organic, but in a... Everything is living, but in a state of death, starting to die, almost rotting. Um, the only thing I can think of as a comparison is comparing the green and the rot and Swamp Thing, but it's that kind of, it's that kind of mixture of things. There is that that sort of dampness, everything being wet um, and yeah. soggy. I, I like the word membrane for describing what's behind the wallpaper because it does feel like 
Like, he's so close, if he was just a little more ethereal, he might be able to pass through and get back home. Mm, yeah. Guy, what have you... What can you say about sort of anything definitive about the nature of the Upside Down and what it is? I mean, obviously, they, they are deliberately vague about it in the show, but... I know more than you could. Um, I have no sort of... Um, I have opinions and... But yeah, no definitive information by any means. I think almost, to be honest, like I was saying before, I suspect I may be wrong, and I kind of hope I am. But I think second series, there will be a temptation to show us a lot more of the upside down. And if they pull it off, fine. But there is a, a streak in me that, that thinks, don't try and show the unshowable because you will lessen it. You will make it small. If you can fit it on our TV screens, it's not worth being terrified of. I mean, you know, I, I'm generalizing awfully. but so uh, I, I do have a thought on this whole, if you can show something, it gets a little less scary. I think they potentially made a mis- like a, that it was a bad move for them to show the faceless creature in this episode. Okay. Because I I would argue that like I think we could have had the same effect by Joyce has been saying that she saw a faceless creature trying to come through the wall, and we now have a second description of someone who saw a faceless creature. I don't think we needed to see a photo. To back that up, I think two people independently saying they saw a faceless creature around their stolen person might have been enough for them to still. There's something connect. nice and sort of. Um, What's the sort of almost photojournalistic aspect, though, to be able to sort of go and look? It even shows up on film. I suppose that's that's kind of. It is, but I I was sli- slightly I know, less I, scared not, of it once. Yeah. I saw it in the picture. Like I I like the fact that even once we have a picture of it, it is distant we can't see detail and it's blurry they still keep it from being you from getting too good of a look at it but did anybody I, I'm else still think a it was shame yeah did, did anybody else think it was reminiscent of that classic um bigfoot shot i didn't think of it at the time but <laughs> yeah, i can see because... what you mean now i can't think of anything else <laughs> God, I should have put that in the book, shouldn't I? See, see straight away, straight away, I, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm cheapened. I'm cheapened by the company in which I'm keeping. I, I also, I like the 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 progression we get for Hop during this episode, where mm. um, he's, you know, he realizes the body's not real. He knows there's something fishy about the lab because they were showing him fake footage, and that he goes out of his way now to just by himself try and break into the lab like I think he's started to realise like okay I can't just sit back and deal with this you know as a small town cop I need to I need to follow my gut and try and save someone who's lost their child mm. well he's a doer is Hopper that that seems yeah. pretty obvious from the word go but I think he he's he deliberately contrasts to Joyce in the sense that, that she has total faith in what's happening and um, oh, I mean obviously she doesn't know what's happening but she has total faith that Will is there She's for her it's all about just finding ways for him to communicate um, whereas for Hopper I think he he needs the evidence but once he has the evidence after this episode he is unswerving in his determination to get this situation sorted out which is quite um heroic i suppose if if there is a uh, a classic hero and he does have that kind of gary cooper 
Western strong silent type thing going on as well. Um, so, um, so I think it, that 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 template does fit him pretty well. Absolutely, it does. and he's yeah. I mean, he's, he's the character. He's one of the many characters. But I, I think the, the level with which we're cheering that man on throughout these eight episodes is is, is quite intense, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, from the minute you see his his you know full ashtrays and. Hello, I'm local cop with issues, but don't worry, I'll probably learn to get over them as, as the story <laughs> progresses because we've all read a book or two. Um, but it, it's it's to its strength that it actually doesn't loiter on that beyond the occasional sort of mumble in the woods of oh, you know he's 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 a little bit sad. Um, it actually just lets him push forward. We don't get to see uh, we don't dwell on that too much. We we get to see the redemption quite early on, and that's I think that's a, a very sensible move because. As you say, following his progression through uh, through these episodes, being the hero is just such a joy. It's just such a pleasure. But then, you know, he's a great actor. Mm. Uh-huh. He is, yeah. Not specifically so much episode four, but talking about Jim Hopper and him, you know, now he has, you know, he's now convinced of this. It really struck me the second watch, um, the way that this, this progresses very realistically in terms of them figuring things out it's very deductive reasoning it's very okay this does it you know this thing was weird you know first the 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 video didn't look right that that was a little weird and hopper's like "Mm, okay and then the body and he's like okay something's going on here and it very naturally over time the more information they get the way they put it together it it really impresses me because it feels very there's nothing in there that feels like, you know, oh, you would, you know, it, you know you're know, you filming this in 2015, I want to say, what, you know, in now, but it it feels very true to the time. Plus, it's nice to, I liked watching his process. I liked seeing Hop come to incorrect but logical conclusions as he's going along, um until he finally kind of stumbles on the truth as he gets more and more information. It was nice to see that process happening instead of, ah, I figured it out. I've jumped right to the correct conclusion. Yeah. When the boys dress up Elle in Nancy's dress, um, she looks like what a small boy thinks that a girl looks like. Mm. She's got, she almost looks like she's out of a Victorian photograph. And as we discussed yesterday, they're not doing this because they're trying to dress her up as what a girl should look like. It's social camouflage. They're hiding what's different about her from the world. You know, obviously for her protection, because her immediate safety is far more important than asserting the independence of an identity which she didn't even create for herself anyway. I mean, like, at the same time, that, the, the thing that sort of justifies it and, like, you know, that, you know, doesn't make it look like they're playing makeover with her is that she, you know, they're not really sure about what she looks like themselves. Not, we did our best. And she's like, <gasps> pretty. Like, you know, she's like, I'm a person for the first time. That, that characterized Elle more than it characterized them. It makes sense for her character in as, in as much as she she knows that she is female she like that seems to be a thing that she's aware of and she has seen women since getting out of the lab and has this like oh that's a thing that would be nice mm-hmm. and like cuz she does point it out in previous episodes she does point out 
women in photos and describe them as pretty. Mm. And I think there is something nice of, about her being able to look at herself and feel less out of place herself, possibly. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> it is a nice thing. I just, I suppose there's an element that I feel sad when someone wants to, you know, is, is, is embracing conformity. And that says more about me than anything else. But it's, so it, it's kind of, it's, it's perfectly understandable. And I'm sure we've all been there because I, I, I'm going to gamble and say most of us were, were uh, the kids at school that perhaps didn't entirely conform. But <laughs> yeah, we'll thought, give you that impression. I thought I was probably right. Yeah, <laughs> we all wish we could make our bodies piss themselves in front of everyone. So, um, which is also actually a slightly uncomfortable scene in this episode. But I'm going to confuse myself. But yeah, the idea that uh, she becomes more normal in inverted commas. Uh, there's just a little streak inside me that that fills a moment of sadness, and I'm I'm glad when she goes back to looking the way she she always did. Mm. Well, I I also want to comment too, talking about the that makeover scene. I think it's the closest she's ever come to having something that's hers, even if it's only temporarily. Mm. Like she's because she may have been dressed in hospital gowns her entire life mm. and they've never let her hair grow out and all this stuff. And I'll, I'll bet this is something, you know, no one's ever given her, you know, something she can wear and just quote unquote, at least try to be herself and not a science experiment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Anything else from four? This is the one where at the end Hopper is uh, talking to that guy, and then he just uh, he he just decides. I I believe Alistair may have tweeted this at some point. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, just got past episode four. Sheriff Jim Hopper no longer gives a fuck. <laughs> it's where he's 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 beaten that guy up, and he's he's like, you know too much. What's going on? And then he uh, ends up you know driving up to the. Um, uh, facility and, and cutting the uh, wires and that that's um I mean straight away like when you've been denied the truth for four episodes like someone deciding oh bollocks to this is a really exhilarating moment because you're like all right he's on the case now this is like this is the exact halfway point of the series as well so uh, it's it's um, taking action and, and agency and um, as I said um, yesterday uh, guy uh, Hopper. Depower yeah, flipping upside down. One uh, Hopper depowers the shady government agency types in one sentence at the end. Now I'd forgotten what actually happens to them. I was like, they just get written out. They wander off with their tails between their legs uh, when, when, when Hopper and Joyce decide to go into the upside down. But actually, they don't. I'd forgotten this. They, you know, round, you know, wander off looking for L round the corner, find L, and then she totally magnetos them. She renders them entirely powerless, makes them bleed out of their eyes, and if Brenner had been there, she might have killed him, but maybe not. Like if he'd if he'd threatened her friends, yeah, maybe she actually would have taken that step. The, the fact that he wasn't there is probably the only reason he's not dead. But um, again, this and in a sense, it's a surprising scene not to get, isn't it? Considering the yeah. whole sort of father-daughter dynamic you Were do expect it, yeah. to get that face off and that choice and that decision i'm That's, not saying it's a bad thing we don't get it because in some ways it's quite nice for a series that actually plays with quite a lot of formulas that you know are, are well trodden and i don't mean this as a criticism but i mean it is a nostalgic show it's a lot of its storytelling is is 
grounded in very familiar formula. Mm, very um, deliberately so, I think. No, precisely. And then so when you can when you can move off those little directions here and there, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. But yeah, it's surprising we don't get that moment in a way. Hmm. But uh, it also that ties in with the fact that the the shady government tabs. Do they have a name? The actual uh, agency, the Pharmacon. Uh, SGT. SGT. Uh, thank you. Yeah. One of those uh, acronyms. That's a complete um, lie. Yeah. But, yeah. Stupid guesses. <laughs> <laughs> no shady government types. Yeah, shady government types. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, they they are um, like they're, they're a big threat the whole way through. Even though Modine never seems to be my only like bugbear throughout the uh, the first season is that Modine's character never really comes across as a terrifying shell of a man or conflicted and human. In fact, he just seems to be kind of bored by the whole thing, uh, which makes me feel like he was miscast. And uh, Alistair mentioned yesterday that Jason Isaacs had played a similar character in another TV show. I was like, man, Jason Isaacs could have done something with this character. Maybe we'll get like you know a lot of, of great Brenner later, but um, like that's that's a weakness of the first season and a weakness of a film to go. Well, later it might be good, but. Um, I sort of agree, but at the same time, I think that's refreshing in the sense that he, he doesn't actually give us. I mean, we all love the scene during villains. We all love, you know, something that's got a bit of teeth to it and a, and a bit of depth. But I quite like the government scientist that's actually just beige. Um, I think there's a, I think there's a degree of realism to it. I think you know, that is the sort of quiet, slightly empty man that does, you know, create atom bombs. Uh, I quite, you know. There is. I don't know if that was intentional for me, but I can I can see why other people might find it refreshing to not it's have someone quite, it, eccentric. It's quite a staple or of an the, Agent Smith type. The the Stephen King novels that they're harking back to as well. The idea that there is somebody who does the most horrendously terrible things to people because it's his job. Okay, so on to episode five: the flea and the acrobat. This episode, I think, um, like, because at this point I'd, I'd sat up and taken another sip of coffee and gone, right, okay, so Jim Hopper's, like, one of my favourite characters when he's in gear. Um, but this is, um, like, the, the strength of the character is, and I love this, seeing pieces of a character put together slowly over the course of, in this case, four episodes, and then you get a big dramatic scene in which you know a lot about the character and so you are inferring their reactions even though they aren't saying them out loud this is the conversation he has with his ex-wife and um you know the information that he's got you, you know why he's calling her and then when the child on the line starts uh, chiming in it's uh, he he plays it so restrained that it's, it's a really powerful scene uh, for me, and and I, the capper is that they don't have to tell you what's going on in his head because they've laid all these pieces out for you. That that to me is what really good drama can achieve. In that, uh, and and this is drama that can uh, occur in any genre, but that when drama is used well, it's developing a character for you and then putting them in a situation where they are in internal pain, but only you know from watching the scene what they're going through someone who was a stranger watching might not know and it's also it's it's, it's extremely good um uh, visual storytelling as well because he's just sort of slumped on the kitchen floor his guns nearby this is one of my favorite scenes and um mainly down to the fact that it's so i'm trying to think of another word for restrained and subdued tactfully intense 
I almost wondered if Jim was not aware that she'd had another child. If they hadn't, I don't know if they hadn't had contact in that. I assumed I assumed that he wasn't aware and that that was him realizing it. Oh, jeez. Ah, see, I had assumed that they actually speak fairly regularly, but that she's gradually trying to pull back. Yeah, no, I, yeah I assumed I, that I took more of Sharon's uh, read on it. I assumed that he Fair. knew, but uh, he was trying to steer the, the conversation into one direction and then realized that with the child right there, the new child, he wasn't going to be able to get that level of intimacy, get that level of, well, show that level of vulnerability, and it's clearly a rare thing for him, mm. so... Well, he doesn't have her full attention. Yeah, and he, for for, for the, a very, a kind of, like, blackly ironic reason, mm. and so he backs off at that point, and that's that's what really has the power of the scene for me. Uh, but it, it, it could be read in either direction, actually. If, if he didn't know, that's powerful in its own right as well. Fair. I... <laughs> Yeah, both seem valid. Potentially valid. Well, he's still obsessing over the previous child. That's the that's the lovely thing. Is she's he's you know he's dwelling on one while she's moved on to another. Absolutely, and it's never it's never uh, clarified, and that's one of the things that I, I think is so beautiful about his story that his history is that you never get the full explanation of of what's gone on mm. um but you get the shape of the, it from context exactly and the the what i took from that context is that possibly the reason why they ended up separating is that she wanted to have another child and he didn't yeah. mm. i also like the the fact that they hold back on the um showing of the uh, the the child until really late in the day um uh, what i said yesterday about that the the elemental power of a, a mother protecting her child being far more powerful than the guy you won't be familiar with me specifically saying this but you'll be familiar with the trope the my dead family trope which is uh, my wife and child were killed by drug dealers which allows me to kill anyone with justification my rage will power this story and that's basically all you're getting yeah should we go and kill any wife. writers that do that <laughs> thank goodness my Couple. wife and children were killed now I get to put my very specific set of skills to use <laughs> if if Hopper had been written um, sloppily sloppy Hopper you'd have begun with that scenario it would have been like well this is the reason this guy's pissed off because of that you remember imagine having a wife and child then imagine losing them oh that'd be terrible wouldn't it boys okay so moving on to just pure blind rage yeah and that is a trope i am sick to death of <laughs> i think a lot quite, of us are <laughs> that would be quite an interesting story though my wife and child died of cancer i'm going to dedicate myself to the revenge of medical research curing cancer <laughs> I'm gonna punch cancer to death. <laughs> that that would be like good. We're left to assume what happened to her throughout it as well, because there were various yeah. points in the t- in the story where I assumed that she had been kidnapped as well. At one point, there was a point in time that I thought maybe him making up all of those stories, maybe she, maybe her mother just took her away, and he seems to think of her as dead. You know, there, there was a lot of times where I was curious as to what happened to this girl. When it finally came around to actually answer that question, I it was not what I expected at that point because it seems so mundane. Mm. I also really liked there's, there's a very, very subtle implication, I think, at two points in the whole series where um, it 
came across to me that Joyce knows what happened to his daughter. Mm. Oh, yeah, no, I think, yeah, no, Joyce knows. It feels like they've been, yeah, they've talked before. Mm. Yeah, they've yeah. been close. It's super close. I, I close. got the impression that it's like a somewhat of a public secret that like everyone that knows but no one yeah, really talks about. One of those small town things that everyone knows but they yeah. keep it under the road. Word, word spreads fast in a small town. Mm. Specifically a small town where the worst thing that happened before this was someone's head getting attacked by an owl. <laughs> well you say that like that's no that's no major incident. I mean <laughs> that's a terrible thing. I've been there, there, are, it's, there, it's are worse things, there are worse things than that that, unhapp- that happened. There was the repeated thefts of the lawn gnomes. A <laughs> 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 um, plot that we, we completely never returned to. Taking a bit of a Turn. There's one thing I did really like about the composition of this episode, uh, at least in sort of the middle of it. I really like the fact that we have three separate plots that all start coming together at once, all about this realization that Will is alive. Yeah. Like you've got Jonathan and Nancy having this this realization of there is a creature we know it exists. We can track down where people have spotted it and try and take this thing down. You've got the boys having their realization of, like, our friend is on the other side of the D and D table. How do alternate dimensions work? And you've got the you've got the mother who's very much like, I know that my child is alive. I don't know what to do about that. Teaming up with the detective that's like, Hey, this lad's something to do with it. I like that you have all these plot threads independently springing up and starting to like ramp up into motion at around the same time I think it's a lovely thing about the show as a whole and and, and a real advantage to the the sort of Netflix model now that kind of wonderful thing of here's eight hours and we can just make this work and make this nice make it flow perfectly and you know it's 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 terribly well structured and it's terribly well paced as you say, we're hitting the midway point now, and things things are already coalescing. Not not to the point where we're going to end up marking time for the rest of it, but yeah, that sort of convergence around this 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 point in the series. It's, it's, yeah, I think it's one of its best actually. Is quite how it manages to never feel horribly rushed, but it never ever feels slow, and it just feels perfectly perfectly it, paced as an eight-hour yeah. novel. It's 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 quite an achievement. It does one of the things that I really love about Netflix as a format in that they don't stick to rigid episode lengths. Uh, The episodes can vary in length up to about 20 minutes to Mm. accommodate how much story did we actually want to tell for this episode and we can cut it off early or let it run long if we need to. Because the way it sets up is you've got that first episode setting up the mystery. By the time you reach the halfway point, you've had okay, we think we're heading towards a solution. Oh, no, wait, here's your left turn that, like, throws everything out of out of whack slightly. Second half of the show starts, and it's like, oh, there is a big mystery, and everyone starts putting their plans into motion to solve the big mystery. It's just really nicely paced. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and that flexibility for the length is is quite important, I think, if, if TV format is going to 
um, if it's going to, of course it's going to, maintain its popularity because that... Will TV stay having... popular? Will kids start doing something else? <laughs> Swing ball? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. ball no, or something. It, it um, really is one of the biggest strengths on-demand TV has. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah, because that, that idea of a, a network slot that is... Um, you know, 45 minutes interspersed with commercials and you have to structure it in such a way that every 10 to 15 minutes people are going to be okay with being yanked out of the action so yeah. that we can show them toothpaste. Sidebar, when we... Ch- sorry, one thing, Laura, because yeah, on yeah, that go note, on. when we try to sit down and watch uh, Agent Carter on Hulu and just kept getting adverts for... American products that we couldn't possibly even use if we wanted to. DiGiorno pizza and American Express cards and I probably had them in the UK. And like internal American flights we can't possibly use and stuff. And it's like, at least have the decency to Google us and go, well, you look at cats all the time. Look at cat food. Do you want some cat food? No, we don't have a cat. We just like cats. (laughs) But Hulu, it became unbearable to watch because like Agent Carter would get to a really emotional, like, nuanced point and then it would go hey how could you know nobody knows even Anna doesn't know because she is married to a coward who can't bring him this is the Quicksilver cashback card from Capital One it's not the juggle a bunch of rotating categories card. It's not the sign up for rewards each quarter card. It's the no games, no messing around, no earning limit having. Do I look like I'm joking? Turbo boosting heavyweight champion of the world! Cashback card. You fucking Nick Fury, you're messing everything up! <laughs> the more. So, yeah, Netflix is the way to go for direct TV. Hulu is appalling in that regard. Uh-huh. I had no idea they even did advertising. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then they blocked it for the UK, so it was like, well, we didn't even want your stupid TV service. It's, so it's one of several services that does it. Like, Sky's online viewing uh, subscription service also still has ads. Like, there's a surprising number of the paid online subscription services that also show you ads on top of your mm-hmm. payment. Mm-hmm. And it eats your evening up as well. It's like sacrificing a good hour of your evening just to be promoted to. Yeah. And then that's not including the times when it crashes during one of the ad breaks and you have to reload the whole thing. Because it's like, well, the important thing is the ad. And it, like, this is, this is just an ad distribution system with TV attached. Mm. I mean, that's just us. We hate being advertised to. Every other people may not be bothered at all. But that's why we like Netflix in that regard. As possibly the only two Americans on this particular episode, um, I, I think that the Hulu thing with ads is, it's, a concession to the networks, to ABC, CBS, the, that are that are slowly dying, but still wield a bit, fair amount of power, and they still are trying to maintain the old twenty-two to twenty-four episodes a year and that sort of thing. And you have, you know, like you said, the forty-two minutes or whatever it is, and you well, know, they're you, clinging to the nineties model of things, basically. It's a political, yes. yeah, it's a political decision more than anything else. Yeah. Huh. Which and I, I have to say, as an American, I love the fact that we're moving towards what uh, what I perceive anyway as more British style TV of you know having shorter seasons and having like the Showtime shows were Dexter, for example, and like this. The yeah, Netflix Stranger, stuff. I was going to say, or like Stranger Things. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. That you know you you do get it in you know eight. 
10, 12, maybe 13 episode chunks, and you much more stick to your story, which All is great. filler, no filler. Yeah. Yes. Especially with Netflix not saying, what, we need 14 episodes of you. Well, we've only got enough story for 12. We'll do two filler episodes then, fine. Like, that's, yeah, that is absolutely yeah. a, a it, godsend in, in terms of, like, focusing and boiling down TV to just the best stuff. It was really refreshing going back to rewatch Stranger Things and realizing, oh, it is only eight episodes. Mm. And that wasn't a bad thing because it's such a well-paced eight episodes that I'm glad there's no filler. It's a strange thing about how we've consumed our media, though, over the years. A friend of mine, um, and I discussed this quite extensively, most particularly about home media, actually, how we went through this phase, like with DVDs, where we wanted box sets to be huge and, and possibly shaped like a human body with the discs inserted in various points. And it would look very impressive. It would never fit on a shelf. But, you know, we were there thinking, oh, this is beautiful, limited edition. And we have got to the point now where we go, can, we, can it not be in a really slim case? Can it not be shorter? Can it not be simpler? Can it not just be, oh, God, it just looks like homework. Please, can it not have 24 episodes? Christ, episode 17 is going to be awful. We all know it is. It's going to be the obligatory comedy episode, and we won't laugh. And we have done that, I think, as a society. We've got to a point now where, we're, you know, we, we like. I know there's lots of discussion about binge watching, but it's not just about binge watching. It's about, as you say, it's that that concentrated element yeah. of it. Of, of do you know what? We, we we had all the trimmings, and it seemed really exciting for a while, and then we realised that actually it was all a bit dull. Can we just have it a bit less? I want to good. I wanted to go back and rewatch Gilmore Girls a while back, and I had my realization that it is seven seasons of about eighteen hours per season, and just realizing this this much content is intimidating to jump back into, and mm-hmm. most of those seasons could have been considerably cut down. Mm. Yes. Mm. Right. Okay. We, we went so a bit let's off carry track. on with our we really did. long we did, podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so this is how we roll, things. guys. Yeah. Sorry. The kids realize. No, 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 I just like the irony. It just so, pleased me. So the kids realize their compasses aren't pointing north, and they think maybe that that will point to the gateway to the other dimension. Except eleven has been messing with the compass. There you go. Mm. That's some points we can discuss. Yeah. <laughs> I love I this. Like I, the compass I, thing because I think my favorite Dusty is aggravated and sarcastic Dusty when he's trying to explain how compasses work to everybody. <laughs> That, that's my favorite dust is watching him trying to explain things that make so much sense to him and everybody else is looking at him like he's crazy. Do you even know how compasses work? Yeah. Do you see batteries in this thing? Mm. <laughs> well, again, guy in the chair, you know, he's the, the person with all yeah. the information and he's just waiting for everybody else to catch up. And he's the one that doesn't bicker. That's that's the main reason I adore him. Yeah. Mm. He doesn't do bickering. He does. He does. He does snacks, and what you see is what you get. Mm. Yeah. So, at at this point, like Eleven's reasons for messing with the compass definitely aren't made clear yet. Everyone understandably gets furious at her for sabotaging their plan, and she flips Lucas's body in the air. Like she, she really like lashes out like a cornered animal is the the way I felt like describing it. It's this sort of like feeling trapped and lashing out and unintentionally really hurting someone. Well, I think she's finally sick of having to jump through hoops of cynicism, mm. you know, and it's, it's, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you were saying about the the, the uh, changing the compass is not being clear yet. I must admit, I I I kind of got that from the word go that she was just scared to take them there, not yeah. just for herself. Same. Yeah. But I mean, that was yeah. that was the most potent thing for me. Is it wasn't so much about because she's been there, she knows what it's like. She doesn't want to go back. But the yeah. last thing she wants to do is take these these new shiny sort of people in inverted commas that she yeah. now discovers exists I, and that are really I, terribly lovely. So let's not take them to the bad place. Yeah, I should probably clarify my statement a, a little bit. I guess uh, her re- she hasn't explained her reasons in a way no. that the other kids understand her reluctance to go back she's not really explained to them quite how bad of a place this is and why she would sabotage their attempts to head there she's not an explainer that's that's that's, uh, true i'm not sure they would fully believe her either not that they not that they distrust her but simply like how can you believe that that people could treat a child like that moreover they're adventurers. They're going to go anyway. Particularly Lucas. Yes, it's dangerous, but Will needs our help. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't have her frame of reference as well. As you say, it's, you know, the, there's this sense that she could try to explain certain things to them with the limited vocabulary that she has. But whether it would actually come across in a way that they could even comprehend is is dubious. It's an interesting thing, actually. I hadn't thought, but do you think her vocabulary is limited or just her willingness to communicate? I definitely got the feeling that she doesn't talk because she's not used to being listened to. Like, she's grown up with her thoughts, feelings, opinions, just not being something that people care about. And as such, she's just gotten used to, there's no point in talking because nobody listens when I do. In the same way you don't expect your dog to chat to you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because everybody's so determined to treat her as a thing. I think for me there was, there's an element of that, but it also the idea that she's grown up in this environment where she's given no um, real stimulus, she's not engaged in conversation, and I think it's it's a little bit there's no point and a little bit she's not learned because nobody has talked to her with intent mm-hmm. so um which i think is pro- it's probably spot on yeah, just the reason i asked is because it had never occurred to me that she probably doesn't have a very um, broad vocabulary and the fact that you mm-hmm. said it just sort of immediately fascinated because it hadn't occurred to what? me but i think you're probably right why would she mm-hmm. have yeah, well, what, what made me think it is that there are several occasions where she uses the same word to refer to different contexts, um, where somebody who's got a, a wider vocabulary would probably at least have slightly different words to refer to those things. Mm. Yeah, and, and that is how children learn. Ultimately, they, they learn a lot more from observation and context than being consciously taught. But you kind of have to wonder how much she's had the opportunity to overhear if she spends most of the time in a cell on her own and really only gets talked at rather than to when they bring her out for experiments then then the the vocabulary they use around her is going to be limited as well although i wonder if too it's the case of they they forget she's there so they talk to each other about things definitely yeah almost definitely but then that means that she has to contextualise it herself without anybody to explain to her, this is what this means. Right, right. Because she's reasonably, I mean, she is, when she does speak, she, she does have a limited vocabulary, but she's she makes complete sentences. 
she's not, you know, she's not speaking in quote-unquote stereotypical caveman dialogue. Mm. No, and I think no, that, but she's that, fiercely intelligent, isn't she? I mean, that's... she is, and and I yeah. think that develops a lot the more she hangs around with the boys as well, because she will then have heard them speaking in more kid-like cadence and stringing words together in a way that you know she she may well know all those words, and having the example of well, this is how you put these together to make a conversation. Ah, yes, of course, now that makes sense. God, imagining having to learn how to communicate by listening to teenage boys. That's the most horrible thing ever. Now, who do I shove now? (laughs) Oh, God, no. Oh, Christ, imagine. Imagine if Twitter was how you learned to read. Coming 2018, baby Twitter. She did kind of wind up with some of the best young boys she could possibly have washed up with. Yeah. Agreed. Imagine if the bully kid had found her. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. That bully kid, by the way. Oh. Is, was that Troy is his name? It I think it's Troy, Troy yeah. I mean, what he's... a name. You know, you know a kid's a bully when he's called Troy, don't you? <laughs> and he's got parents that are arseholes. So, I mean, that's why he's a bully. So it's it's all there in the name Troy. Like He, he is very similar to... Has anyone read It? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the Henry... Uh, Henry Bowers, mm-hmm. he's... Yeah. He's like, when he's like, I'm going to cut his little baby teeth out. I'm like, this is a kid who has been dying to kill someone. Mm. And that's bone chilling. But then when I met his mum, I'm like, that doesn't match up at all. And um, this isn't necessarily a criticism. I just, I can't correlate this, like, you know, spoiled little Lord Fauntleroy. Like, I could imagine Steve being the kid of this mum, but I can't imagine this little, I just got to cut someone's kill someone. No, you're right. I mean, like, that's a kid who's been yeah, abused. You get a sport little bully, or you get the guy that's got kittens in a jar that he's drowned under his bed, which is who we're yeah. being told is, is uh, Troy. Was it um, yeah. Patrick Hochstetter in, uh, yeah. in It who really, he gets it the worst. He really does. But uh, yeah, he's the terrifying, like, shut, like, oh, ugh. To that kid. Mm, yeah, don't don't think about Patrick Hofstetter or movie nightmares. I think to some degree, I wrote that uh, that wrote that off as sometimes people are just a bit messed up and there is no reason. Mm, yeah. Sometimes there is no explanation. You just have messed up a uh, messed up person. That's Patrick actually. His parents are just fine with him. Like Henry, like, I think that was the point King was making. Henry Bowers' mm. dad is a fiend. And Patrick Hotstetter's parents are just normal, but Patrick mm. is broken. But sometimes yeah. the, there's just something that you can't explain. Yeah. I think as well, though, meeting his mum towards the end does make his behaviour earlier on seem much more like posturing. Mm. Um, which True. is Yeah, like he's trying to scare him, almost, but he doesn't actually intend to. Exactly, which is almost reassuring in a way. Yeah, oof. it got really close during that, yeah, that cliff scene. We're coming up to that point now, but um, yeah, yeah. It, it is... Um, it's it's satisfying, but as you said, uh, Guy, a little bit disturbing to see uh, um, L make him wet himself because that loss of control. Obviously, like to kids, that's hilarious. To adults, we sort of key that in with she's puppeteering, like she's blood bending him there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's that interesting thing that you know, and I I will admit I kind of touched on this, uh, but most people that are going to really identify and consume and adore this kind of story are, as I mentioned before, 
kids that were bullied at school. Mm. And there's so much of the, I mean, it's a very common trope of the, the kids who were bullied, bullied at school, the outsiders at school, and there must always in that narrative come the scene where the bully is brought low. Because we never did that when we were at school. We didn't. We didn't make our bullies piss ourselves. We we didn't Peter Parker our way out of a situation by coming up with some witty pithy comment. We just got the shit beat out of us and, and and went home and had a cry. You know that's that's the real life of being bullied, and so there is that sort of vicarious pleasure of this kind of storytelling we where need that satisfaction. yeah you know and, and actually so you end up with a scene where you're going down that's brilliant they got the bully look he's pissed himself oh it's brilliant and it's a child that's been forced to piss himself by mind control and oh god i'm evil <laughs> because you suddenly realize that maybe you shouldn't be relishing that scene. You, I, I think probably, we're thinking too deeply perhaps yeah uh, the, I, the kids are murderers or attempted murderers so i'm more willing to let that one pass yeah i'll, I'll <laughs> let it pass because it's one of those things where it's like it's an ultimately harmless punishment for someone who has actively been mocking a dead child the scene where troy is yelling at mike piss yourself I'm thinking, 30 years from now, one of you guys is paying someone else to be the other half of this conversation. Oh, <laughs> this is this is a, uh, a psychological hang-up that is not going away. So yeah, guy, you're yeah. you're right. That's uh, you exactly know, it, it seems like a small harmless thing, but like that's He's his dignity in front Troy of everyone. You Rhinel around the clubs. Let's be honest. <laughs> Nancy and Jonathan put, finally putting things together to uh, to go after the monster. This is, um, it takes up a, a hell of a lot of the um, runtime of, uh, also the, the, the real estate space of it, uh, the Losers Club. Like, right, you know, they start putting together um, what the, uh, you know, what's been happening in Derry over the years, and then they start deciding what they're going to do about it. This is like, that was the, the best elements of it for me, with just these kids finally coming together in a shared cause. So, yeah, you, you, what you mentioned earlier, Laura, about like the three major threads of this sort of all starting to, to, to work in tandem with each other. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of like they've taken the, the adults from it and the kids from it and, and started sort of like splicing them together. Nancy and Jonathan around this point just like stumble across the lair of the beast mm. well you say stumble across stum- well they went out Nancy looking the clever it. girl shoves herself in a gooey tree she shoves herself <laughs> in a gooey tree and then starts shouting really vague things about where she is it's like I'm, it's just, I, you know, I'm right here it's like shout, <laughs> shout that you climbed into the tree I can only imagine gooey tree was one of the rejected titles of Stranger Things <laughs> It's, it's 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 actually one of my online names on on a particular forum, but um... <laughs> that would be oh that would be their Del Toro influences. <laughs> they were like, well, we need a gooey tree, obviously, from Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, yeah. we need goo. But it's, I must admit, this this irritated me. It was, it, it's that it's that enforced cliffhanger moment. That's why I'm sort of referencing Doctor Who. That that and as we talked before about the structure of television, whereby you know, shit, we're heading towards our break point, so we need to find our cliffhanger. Hmm. Nancy, we've just done some wonderful things with Nancy in this show. We've, we've, you know, we've allowed her to be um, sexually liberated. We've allowed her to be intelligent in her own way. All the things that actually, frankly, let's be perfectly honest, a, a proper 80s movie of this kind would not have let her be. Mm-hmm. And then we allow her to be stupid enough to climb into that tree. 
Tell the other person before you climb into the gooey tree, and if you do climb into the gooey tree and see a monster, and you're, like, trying to alert your friend to where you are, don't just shout, I'm here! Shout, there's a tree near the car that's gooey! Rescue me from the gooey tree! That advice works on so many levels. That! I followed the deer! Yeah, I mean, for a series that actually doesn't keep shooting itself in the foot with those contrived moments, which, you know, I mean, anyone that enjoys fantasy fiction of any any stripe on, on screen, we develop a tolerance for these moments because, mm. you know, the genre is full of them. And we kind of, we raise our eyebrows and we go, it's okay because we're going to see something really cool in a minute and someone will probably die, so it'll be really exciting. And we just live with it. But for a show that's managed to kind of avoid doing that, this does feel like a very strange stumble to sort of spot the weird tree from hell and, as you say, not go very obvious thing of going, oh, by the way, I don't know if you've spotted, but we've got some magic hell trees over here um, <laughs> that appear to be, you know, obviously gateways to another dimension. I was wondering if maybe we should perhaps, you know, very cautiously and carefully, possibly using rope or some form <laughs> of buddy system, investigate these well, magic hell trees. We, we did learn in the first, like, couple of episodes, a rope's not going to do you much good because you will just get eaten straight off the rope. I know, but she doesn't know that. that. I know that. think kids don't know that. I'd give her uh, bonus points. I go, well, fair dues. At least the girl got a rope. Well, at least they do work something out from their adventure into the tree. Because, like, episode six does start with them working out, like, oh, this thing is a nocturnal predator that has a taste for blood. Like, they at least work something out from their ill thought out venture into the gooey tree. Mm. Well, <laughs> was that, was, yeah, was it worth it? Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. I also. I also want to comment. I, I I noticed in there. I was like, I'm glad she didn't turn into Willie from uh, Temple of Doom. Indiana Jones Temple of the Temple of Doom. Yes, that she was like screaming and not stop until the end. Yeah, Jesus. No, I was glad that didn't happen, but I would have expected a little bit of gross out. Just you climb through a slimy, gooey tree. Anyone's going to be a little. Uh. What the show was missing was a makeover montage where she comes out as a goth. That's really what it boils down to. Yeah. Together. Yes. <laughs> I've been so happy at the songs of death. firmly into episode six territory now. I think oh, so, I think so. Yeah. right because episode six territory is where right if there's any point in this that for me really makes the end of Nancy's relationship with uh, Steve and Jonathan about the most unsatisfying thing that could ever possibly happen it's it's this bit because um, why how and where is somebody who behaves like that acceptable boyfriend material? What, explain. What's the moment, Sharon? It's the moment when he sits there and lets his friends spray paint Nancy as a slut all over town. Yeah. Yeah, you would think that would be like, the point where you say, hey, 
maybe you're not a nice person and I Mm. shouldn't engage with you from this point on. I am glad he didn't die because that would have been a cheap move of ha-ha, this guy that you hate Mm. gets gets killed. And And the same with the punishing the bully. I quite like the fact that the three of them all come together to fight the monster at the end. And that he has room to grow later on. Yes, absolutely. And I am glad... But he still has not come back with a capital B. I also appreciate the fact that she didn't end up with Jonathan because that would have been just as cliched and I I quite like the fact that they didn't go down that route. I personally would have liked her to do the whole, right, I'm just going to have a little bit of time on my own right now try and survive without obsessing about boys penis to hold on to um because it can be done um but for for me um, we did sort of touch on this briefly yesterday um but the the idea that you don't really get enough from steve's point of view for that to be he's kicking out because he was hurt because i i couldn't be sure that he wasn't kicking out because he was terribly terribly possessive I think a degree of that is a production thing because I mean it was as scripted it was very much intended that um, Steve would just be the cliched arsehole that was mm. that was that was the character as scripted um, it was it was entirely down to Joe Keery's performance and the fact that he kept going to the Duff Brothers and going wouldn't it be more interesting if dot 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 and, and started muddying I... the waters there. I still yeah. don't think there's enough for me to consider those waters muddied. Like I, <laughs> I really feel like they they we got too little too late right at the end to try and be like, hey, no, we redeemed my, him. My point, my point being that if they decided that at the scripting stage, maybe it would have been clearer. Mm, maybe they would. Yeah, I, I think yeah, what happens yeah, is they're yeah, shooting this sense. stuff. The actors come in. They're mm. you know because we know these days TV is not rehearse record. It's it's you mm. shooting it, and yeah. changes are happening while you're shooting the scene. And and, and Joe Keery is going to them saying, "How about we try this a bit?" And and maybe if that decision, which I think is a lovely decision, I think it's really an interesting decision to make Steve not the asshole that we could assume he would be. I think that is actually the completely correct decision to make for this series. If that had been made at script stage rather than on the hoof because of the performance of the actor and because of the interests of that actor who's making those suggestions, then maybe we wouldn't be having the indecision over over his motivations because maybe it would have been clearer. So I think that's why we end up with something that perhaps I'm biased because I'm looking at it thinking, I know what they meant to say and therefore I'm just going to pretend they said it. Actually, I was going to mention something from episode 7. Um, do you remember that uh, bit where the, the teacher's watching a bit of the thing with his uh, wife or girlfriend? The mm, dog. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and not, The girlfriend's not a dog. I meant the, oh Christ. I meant that he was a dog. <laughs> the bit with of, the dog. Oh, you charming. Oh, Jesus. No, it was the bit where the guy's head comes all the oh, way yes. off okay. and then drips onto the floor and then turns into a spider mm. and then there's that one awkward shot of the thing where the spider goes, nah, 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 nah. Um, uh, she's freaking out. She's like, oh, really? Ugh. And she's like shielding her face. And he does the best thing you can do with someone who's really not liking a horror movie rather than going, no, just watch it, okay? If you don't watch the violence, you'll never get desensitized to it. Or I'm liking it, so you should like it too. Or, you know, just watch it for me. Or, uh, oh, just don't watch it then, don't bother. And, and, or, or angrily switching over to something else. Or passive aggressively switching over to something else. Or probably the worst of the lot, which is just to make fun of the film, to sit there just talking at the film and making quips and, and heckling the film. Which, if it's something important like the thing, means you diminish and subtract credibility and respect from something which is actually worthy of attention. 
doing that during awful grotty movies is one thing, but the the thing is something you want to get engaged with, engrossed in some capacity with. He says, do you know how they did that? Melted plastic and microwaved bubblegum. And she's briefly intrigued. It breaks the spell of the the powerful spell of how um, effective the thing is, but it gets her interested in the technical side of it. And it's that that's a really lovely way of opening up what is quite an oppressive uh, genre for people who are, you know otherwise are left either left cold to it or genuinely you know kind of upset by that kind of thing. Just you sound like you're speaking from experience here. Is this is, no. is this something you've done? No, I mean, uh, I've never really had any trouble trying to get shower at you. On I think occasionally with Lyra, I um uh, I, I don't tend to show her the horrors which have bleak endings. Like if if it's scary as hell, but it has a a, a, a satisfying ending. Like I, I I won't show her um what was that the mist. Yeah, I won't, show, I won't show her the mist or um <laughs> it comes at night, for example. Mm. Uh, but for example, she really likes aliens. And it's not really the way I... Like, she's not massively into the technical side of things. She's into the storytelling and the character side of things because she's just listened to us talking about it so much that she starts to pick up on stuff herself. Mm. Generally, I if I need her. to diffuse anything for she her, is. I tell her what it means. Yeah. She's eight and uh, about... To, is she about to turn nine? Yeah. Yeah, about to turn nine. So, um... Like, but that's that we perfect discussing... moment where it's all true, where it's all story. It's all about narrative. It's not actually about special effect. Because I know what you yeah. mean about... about welcoming people into horror cinema with that but I'm 41 and I'm still there going no it's all true these are all these are historical documents the fog <laughs> had really did turn okay. into a spider <laughs> because I just love story and I think yeah. it's a child it's a, a childhood thing isn't it that adoration of story and that's yeah. just amazing and the the Duffer Brothers have a hell of a lot of authenticity for um, for people who were uh born a year after this film is set like they <sighs> they really watched the right things when they were younger and like they they reference repeatedly the mums saying you can watch a movie anyone you want even if it's r rated and it's like oh you're the best mom as opposed to you're not watching that movie you might end up creating something for netflix later in life <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, if you if you listen to our Amazon movie reviews things, there's all of these like really affronted, upset parents who like won't let their kids see anything, and it's like, what? Like, how do you want them to be able to relate to the world? Like, I'm not saying necessarily show your kid aliens. We'll talk about that. We're doing a whole show on raising a geek child, uh, but um, there is a a balance. There is a middle. That makes it sound between... like a project. I really want. Oh yeah, <laughs> I want. Notes. Everyone I wants want to call their child the project. The <laughs> <laughs> but there is a there is a middle ground between uh, utter permissiveness and just allowing them to watch whatever, so they get deadened and desensitized. And you know, like, like she talks about this these kids at school who are like, "Well, I've seen this and I've seen that and I've seen Deadpool," and they start swearing. And I'm like, "Okay, right." She's seen Deadpool. I had to fast forward over the bit with the calendar girl <laughs> sequence. Um, but <laughs> Go and stand in the kitchen. She she never says... <laughs> Finish fucking her the fuck up! Language, please! Suck a cock! Or anything that uh, Wade no, ever says. Not in our earshot, anyway. Not in our earshot. No, she, so, like, she understands not to swear, but... The, the difference between, like, total permissiveness and just shutting them off from everything, which I, I think both of them are equally harmful in different ways. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to... You've got to sh- I think you've got to show kids terror... 
because I think kids actually process terror a lot better than adults do anyway. Yeah, especially uh, adults who haven't been able to process terror as kids. Yeah. You just reminded me, when I was a kid, I was allowed to watch the Blues Brothers chase sequence, but only with the volume turned off, because they might swear. How, I watched that so then? often in silence. I watched the entire, that last <laughs> sort of, that ridiculous, fi- yeah, I wasn't allowed to listen to Sweet Home Chicago. I I, I was stuck with this 15 minutes of police car trashing in absolute silence. Like it was a, you know, a, 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 a Harold Lloyd movie. It, it I was, was going to say, you could have turned off the colour, turned uh, on a bit of type music in the background. Right, episode so, six of Stranger Things. Episode um, six and seven. And seven. We're yes. up to seven. I think. Uh, one thing yeah. about episode six, um, it has probably the only sequence that I can genuinely say that I didn't like, because it's the sequence that stops trusting the audience for a little bit, and mm-hmm. it's when uh, Hop and Joyce are talking um, to uh, the woman's sister. I can't remember the, anybody's name now. Um, talking to the sister and Terry the sis- Ives. Yeah, Terry Ives' sister. Um, and she's explaining the MK Ultra connection and kind of what happened, and it keeps flashing back to stuff that we saw. And I'm wondering who these flashbacks are benefiting other than the audience, because Joyce and Hop didn't see Eleven knock somebody into a wall, and it's it's purely for our benefit. And I'm like, I, I yes, I put it together myself. You don't need to tell me that Eleven is Jane. I got that. Mm. That's and a fine point. When you do a flashback like that, just like a few frames, it's supposed to be in the person's head. If they weren't present for it, that's redundant. I haven't yeah. thought of that. It, it's also kind of... It's one of the few times that this show doesn't take into account the fact that it is designed for single session or couple of sessions binge-watching. Yeah. Like, with an eight-episode show, you really don't, at any point ever, need to flash back and show you something that you've already been shown. You don't need a previously on Stranger Things. Exactly. I don't think you ever need to be shown something a second time in an eight-episode show. Mm. There was one moment when um, it draws the parallel between pulling out that horrible insect tube thing from Will's mouth and the um, medical tube uh, in uh, Hopper's daughter, which was blunt, but powerful imagery nonetheless. Mm. Although I thought that was going to go another way. I thought the first time we saw it, that Hopper was going to turn around and say, no, that's keeping him alive. Oh. Mm. That would have been clever, but just, just terrible. I, I I like the fact that we still have the whole, like, the whole gang are clearly upset with each other over the dealings of, like, how do we deal with these complex feelings about Eleven trying to protect us, but also misleading us, and... Uh, that whole sort of, oh, we're not sure quite how to process that. Also, we get the coolest Eleven scene in the whole show, which we kind of danced around. The whole uh-huh. um, Mike stepping off of the cliff and Eleven pulling him back up and then breaking yeah. Troy's arm and just being like, nope, you don't make him jump to his death. I'm going to break your arm. Uh-huh. <laughs> the yeah. government... Racket. Managed okay. to find where the kids are and who they are, and, mm. and convert the government them themselves well they are, are bullies. Mm. They're, they, you know, they're basically uh, exploiting where they can uh, for their own personal gain. So yeah, yeah. yeah. and yes. the kids run away. The kids run away from the government, and Eleven mm. mind flips a government van. It's pretty yeah, cool. We get ET, but we don't, do we? We yeah. nearly get flying yeah. bikes, but we get flying vans. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice little. F- it's a flip, if you will. Oh. Uh, oh, wait, hang on, we've we've missed one bit. Uh, the bathtub scene, which Sharon mentioned before. What, why does this scene? Really resonate with you the bit with um, Joyce and Elle. In the the, bath, yeah, the, the pool. Sorry, the pool. I was thinking Sorry, bathtub. Bath. It's that? called the bathtub. Yeah. The, the episode, and, but yeah. the, the the pool. Um, basically, that there's something very womb-like about her going into the pool in the first place, and there's a, a almost a sense of rebirth to this, and she's never been nurtured she's never been held in any way that's that's meaningful she's never been mothered she's never been and i and i mean that in the sense of of um cared for unconditionally mm. um and that joyce who is in a state of shock grief anguish mm. determination all of the above still has it in her to reach out and mother this little girl who has never experienced that kind of touch, that kind of reassurance, that kind of encouragement. This is probably the most powerful scene in the whole thing for me. Didn't you, didn't fact, you desperately hope that Joyce was going to adopt Eleven? I mean, surely that was kind of because that would have been that's that exactly what I was there. Awesome. I was thinking they even yeah. laid that down with my I, kind of like salvaging uh, that little conversation with her. Yeah, yeah. I was expecting yeah. the Matilda ending where the little girl with psychic powers gets adopted by the mother figure. Yeah. Which would Absolutely. have been adorable if predictable, but it would have been so lovely. We would have it would have been and, and given and Mike the predictability. That, exactly. If it was Mike just one series and that was thing, it, that would have been yeah, a nice, a nice ending. ending. Although this bittersweet ending would also have been satisfactory. Mm, yeah, but, but Karen, sorry. but the 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 whole thing with Mike not wanting her to be a sister. Well, if she's you know been adopted by his best friend's mum, that neatly sidesteps well, that. Well, yeah, but you know, element. I would rather um, that yeah, Joyce is a mother <laughs> than Mike as a boyfriend, wouldn't you? I mean. Yes, well, absolutely. No, that's that's the thing, and and um, you know, anyway, that that's uh, she, she's more. Um, I prefer she, to have Mike as a boyfriend than Joyce as a mother. Joyce is super, super, but you super see, no, intense. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the of it. She can have she can have both. But anyway, no, the, you the, could have had both. <laughs> this, this whole section kind of is, in a way, undoing some of the trauma that's brought her abilities Mm. out because it's been done through manipulation, it's been done through uh, punishment and beating and isolation and all sorts of things. And and I'm not in any way saying that one session of this undoes all of that, Mm. but it's it's just this beautiful showing her that there is another way Mm. and she is still using her powers. It's not saying that that side of things of your of yourself you have to abandon but there is another way of doing it and and she has that that sort of almost realization that when there is a good reason for her to use her powers it's not a terrible thing that it's it's like this it's like a thing about money money itself is not evil it's what it's used for power itself is not evil it's what it's used for that that said however the things she sees are pretty evil while she's in that tank Uh yes Uh, like Indeed. oh that person's already dead and there's bugs crawling out of their face and this person That's, is is like yeah. cold and grey and about to die. You've uh, hit upon the the one the one bit of this whole thing that I really didn't like. Uh, uh, there, there's something about defiling the bodies of uh, of the dead that I I really take umbrage with. It's a very elemental. It's a very um, like primeval disgust disgust like there, there was a reason why we started burying our 
grandparents and our parents in um, sort of marked graveyard sites and paying respects to them. It's it's the, it's something about our relationship with both our families and our and the relationship with life and death. So seeing somebody the the opposite of that, just like gutted, like carrion, is. Mm nauseating to me so like there's bits in game of thrones where they defile the corpses of heroes that we love and i just those were like basically there was a point where i was like i'm done with this fucking show and it was because of too much of that and there was like 15 other things as well i absolutely hate seeing torture i hate seeing vulnerable people in pain um i i really respect the fact that uh, the duffer brothers held back from the more sadistic side of uh, adult TV um, through that, but this was one of the bits that bugged me. Something I wanted to comment uh, to tag on to what you were saying, Sharon, is the fact of, it, you know, the important to mention uh, Joyce mothering her, which I agree with you. I love that scene. It's It just, it warms my heart. Um, also, the fact that the key, another key difference with this time her going into the tank, this is her choice. That you know, she's never been given the choice to but do. But Joyce this, gives which... her an out. I mean, Joyce of all people gives her an mm. out, doesn't she? And that's, yeah. there's, yeah. there's a and potency that's what... to that. You know, of, of all of the people involved, to actually say, "I don't mind if you don't do this." Mm. She's the it's, one character becomes... that shouldn't really be able to say that, but yeah, has the strength to, to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's the that's the strength in it: the fact that it gives um, Eleven some control back and some. Um, some semblance of these these abilities you have are a part of you. They don't belong to anybody else. They belong to you, and you use them how you see fit. How did everybody feel about sort of this being the point where all of these threads of the the kids bit of the story and the teenagers bit of the story and the parents bit of the story all kind of meeting here at this center of the cobweb? Well, again, I think it's good pacing in the sense that, you know, we're, we're penultimate episode. We're not worrying about piling too much into episode eight. We're bringing everything to a nice kind of wonderfully knitted point at which we can go. And now the conclusion, you know, which is, mm. it's again, just really good pacing, really good timing. It seemed perfect to me <laughs> that, you know, that all these, these very natural and organic ways that these different people have are coming to the same conclusion through different means and that that eventually they would all find each other but they still also find their own way um you know hop and joyce have their own way of dealing with this the teenagers have their way of dealing with it so when everybody splits up into their own groups again yes we they basically just come to a baseline understanding of what's going on so that everybody knows what to do and then they go their separate ways to try to fix it and their separate ways sort of build on each other mm. I think that I, I really liked the fact that they're all dealing with this uh, this crisis on their own level so you have in fact I think in a way that was one of the things that I kind of left me a bit detached from um, Joyce and, and Hopper going into the upside down because for me I kind of like the idea of the kids are dealing with the 
the the unreality element of it. The teenagers are dealing with the half in half out kind of place where they're actually having to engage with the the physical manifestation of this world, and then the parents are dealing with how this appears on the topside world and how that manifests itself as you know shady government organizations and and missing children and and that kind of thing and i quite liked having those separate threads um and it's it's not that i didn't like the fact that they went in but it just it it kind of upset that neatness for me a little bit right okay episode eight then the final Oh, gosh, a lot of stuff happens in this one. <laughs> it does. It really, really does. It so is. The, the It's so go, 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 go. Yeah, and we get a real close look now at the Upside Down. Mm. So how does that feel? I, I really like that they left it to the very last moment to show us. And that considering it's this place that uh, Will has been surviving in, for a while, it is very barren, very alone, very isolated in the way it's represented. There is this... I don't know, it's its just kind of unsettling in every aspect of its presentation. Mm, it's yeah, it li- wrong. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, mm. it lives up to what it's been built up to be. It is... It is the world, but nothing is right. Mm, yeah. And that may possibly be the reason why, um, I mean, something you brought up, Alex, the idea that um, that how has Will survived here? Is he physical? In which case, has he had food? Has he had water? Is that, you know, is there a way that his body has been able to survive through all of this? Um, which, again, you know, that, that whole sort of attaching him to the wall and... Um, that that may have been part of that trying to sustain his physical form but, but i mean he was clearly roaming around mm, invisible to, to begin with yeah absolutely for a while yeah 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 i i got the impression that there were two distinct things there was the intangible version of him wandering around this alternative world and his physical form that was being kept sustained and alive by the tube down his throat that was trying to keep him alive until it was ready to to deal with him. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. interesting. That like that, I thought that that, that he'd yeah. been caught by the beast at some point and thus got stuck there in the uh, um in in the cocoon. That, but that actually does make sense that he's basically sort of spirit walking away from there mm. because well, it, it's if you if you look at the fact that when um, Eleven goes into that world, it's not in a tangible form. When she goes there through the tanks, mm. um, she her body doesn't go anywhere. She's yeah. it's her mind that goes in, which which kind of led me to believe that maybe this this upside down realm is supposed to be visited in spirit mm-hmm. and not in in physical form and the fact that she's been forced to punch this hole through mm-hmm. the world so that they can go there in physical form that's why it all is so wrong and everything's distorted because they've wounded it by causing her to to rip this yeah. hole in, in reality hell, what you're discussing here mm-hmm. and that a physical form can't exist in that kind of parallel dimension because as you yeah. say it's somewhere that a mind could exist but a physical yeah. body but really should not matter and, and maybe matter the, kind of weirdness absolutely and maybe that's what's kind of ripped this this beast that shouldn't be into maybe not into being but but pulled it to this point because all of a sudden <gasps> flesh blood i've never seen this before wow this stuff is incredibly tasty 
Yeah. And Sorry, it, that was a bit. No, no, no. I think that's like really on hit the nail on the head. It's, it's. I, I think that's part of why it's trying to keep the bodies alive in the goo, is that the longer a body is alive, the longer it can keep feasting on that blood. Mm. And, the, and plant its seed, yeah. presumably for for, yeah. for series two. You know, it's it's. Well, and they were I think that's kind of where we're going, isn't it? It's yeah. Well, they were so. they were clearly referencing. I, mean, I know you've talked about references, but they were clearly clearly referencing aliens when you saw that um, that that egg broken. They walked past what looked like an alien egg. And it seemed to me that the monster didn't want to eat people. He was cocooning them for possibly reproductive purposes. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's incubation, isn't it? It's clearly what's going on there. It's 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 how to send its physical form through to our world, perhaps. Mm. Yeah. I'm wondering if the Duffer Brothers like had a clear idea of exactly what it was going on, or if they're going to retcon it. Um, uh, moving forwards, because obviously Bob gets, to, you know, something terrible happens to Bob long before Will is, you know, able to be, like we, we don't see it happen. But is it possible just that because Will is a lot smaller, it, he needs to be there for longer, and Bob is just just the right age and, hmm, well, um, just body mass. Well, something <laughs> happened when the when the monster destroyed Fort Byers. Something. I mean, because they do walk by the physical remains in the Upside Down of Fort Byers. Mm. So something seems to have been physical happened there. Mm. And that would connect in with that very last shot where where Will has the flashback to the the Upside Down Mm. being there in the bathroom. Which suggests that there is an Upside Down spreading across the entirety of the world. Mm. Yeah. Possibly so. Yeah. Well, this has become cheery, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. Right. Okay. So, what what else have we got in uh, in it, episode? Well, eight? We can, it is we... a very somber episode. It is. No, it, it is, is because some, you know some lovely absolutely. elements to it. Hopper, so. our hero yeah. that we adore and we have adored for you know the seven episodes, and I'm sure we will forgive him come series two, but. There is an element of of, it, of this final episode where we we look at Hopper and we think, "Have you sold out? You know, have, have perhaps for for good reason, perhaps for the best reasons. You know, have you sided with the very enemy that you know we've loathed throughout the the show um, mm. in order to kind of sacrifice Eleven effectively? No, um, I think I think he's sacrificing Eleven because she's not a known. He cares about the kid whose mother he knows, who's part of his community, yeah. who was snatched from under his watch as the, as the sheriff. But and, it's, it's not good. Yeah. It's, it's not it's, nice. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not good, what we hope from our heroes. No, it's, it's mm. not a perfectly good decision, but it's an understandable decision that is rooted oh, it in. Is, but it's, it's that thing uh, where yeah. pragmatism. Um, Sort of invades on our notion. We, we, we've 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 adopted Hopper as a hero. He turns out to be a pragmatist, mm. and that becomes awkward because actually, you know, in our ideal, embraceable versions of, of heroes, we, we don't expect them to be pragmatists. We don't expect them to actually make those kind of difficult difficult decisions. We but go, you know, it's fine. We got the kid back. You know, screw yeah. the child. Mm. We, you know, we, I'm, I didn't know yeah. Eleven. 
I'm sorry about that, but she's gone. But there's your son back. But yeah, I mean, you're right. We we expect our heroes to be able to save everybody. But I think the the moment of sacrifice for me, I I didn't like it. It felt uncomfortable and unpleasant, and I wish it hadn't happened. But I think it again comes back to this idea of control. Ultimately, it's her choice. She steps forward, and she's the one who makes that sacrifice. Somebody else does not sacrifice her. No. And I think that that sense of um, this this laying down your life for others. Um, I I racking my brains to think where I heard it, but it's it's basically somebody saying that you no one can ask someone else to do that. It has to be done voluntarily and and you know with with full consciousness of mind um and i think it's full testament to millie bobby brown for being able to pull this off because there are there are adults that can't oh she's the most phenomenal actor in the show she is she's quite clearly the the best actor in this entire show she's phenomenal she's incredible i think one of my favorite moments in this episode of acting from her is the sheer unbridled intensity during the scene where all of the kids get cornered by the uh, by the government and she uses her mind powers to make everyone's eyes bleed and summon in the monster because blood everywhere mm. the intensity with which she plays that that scene there's no words but she she does an incredible job of just acting through facial expressions that's the thing that alex was talking about earlier about um, david harper with, with with harper that, that an mm. actor that can communicate internal dialogue purely by silent acting you know and and Carl McLaughlin has been doing the same thing in in the third season of Twin Peaks where he just sits there and and somehow communicates an entire sort of huge complex chain of thoughts purely by the expressions on his face and that's something that that, that Eleven is, is clearly doing throughout this entire show there's so many scenes where there is no dialogue whatsoever there is purely her performance and that entirely sells the the whole scene because oh. you know she gets it. She's a natural. She's mm-hmm. phenomenal. Oh, absolutely. I I think too. I think to a certain degree, he's he's making a judgment call. Hopper, that is, is making a judgment call to say she is more capable and more powerful than Will, and you know she can pos- She might end up back with the government guys but she may be able to to a certain degree not save herself but take care of she can take care of herself far more than will can mm. i'm she not sure he that he definitely would does. he really care about that or would he just want will back i don't think it's just that i i don't think it's i don't i, I hopper has been shown to be too compassionate i don't think it's i don't think it's that simple let me let me say that i don't think it's that simple that's my reading from my perspective uh, this was the most powerful moment of the show for me even though it was surrounded by the depowering of the shady government types Mm. um, simply because it boils the whole thing down to a simple but dark premise which is that anything can be achieved it's just a question of what needs to be sacrificed Uh almost anything most anything can be achieved it's just a matter of what can be sacrificed that's actually a line I've got gearing up for I've had that in my head rattling around since about 2006 everything we've been talking about just kind of pales away to this very simple exchange L was in captivity and Will was free and then Will was captured and L was freed and L rebalances that 
Mm. And that's incredibly powerful. Like Sharon yeah. said, she chooses to do that. Yeah. And the fact that it's been set up just beforehand, you can have a life. You can be almost normal. They, they, they set up something to be sacrificed because if you don't have that she's not sacrificing anything she's not laying anything down you she can't was make never a choice if there's no choice to be made they show what she's losing with i really love that visually um her sacrifice ends up mirroring um a, a x-men 135 um mm. where yeah phoenix uh uh specifically attacks the mastermind for what he did to her and it's the same thing, throws him up against a wall. Uh, the, a couple of the shots man- actually match a couple of the panels from that page. But oh, nice. Yeah. So Can that's I the say how much I adore the X-Men comics at this point? Oh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love <laughs> that. They set up L as essentially the Dark Phoenix when Will <laughs> wants uh, X-Men 134. But when it comes to that crisis point, um, they... She does the same thing, but she does it to the Demogorgon. She does it to the monster rather than doing it for selfish reasons, to get revenge for something, for being hurt. She is doing it for heroic reasons. Mm. It's defense, not attack. Exactly, which is why, you know, if she is the Phoenix, then that makes sense that she would return in the next season. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Obviously, we're, we're talking about this great sacrifice, and yet we both... You know, we're all looking at this kind of thing and thinking series two is about to creep along. And let's be honest, we're going to see eleven again, aren't we? Everyone, everyone loves eleven too much. They're not going to not that, bring her back. That doesn't lessen the that's moment. Not- no, it doesn't, yeah. and that's that's something that I I I hear people say often about the the Marvel universe, particularly, but the whole superhero concept of you know, oh, what's the? It doesn't mean anything because they come back. But the the idea that that something returns does not make yeah. the sacrifice any less no. because you don't they they don't know that when they come back it will be in the same form. They don't know they don't that know that they will come back know at all. Not as, die. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As, as long as you believe that the character when they make that sacrifice believe that they're making that sacrifice and that that's they're not going to come back moment. from it that's mm-hmm. all you need yeah. is it's it you just need to be able to believe that yeah that mm-hmm. they've made a choice knowing that the consequences outside of the context of there's going to be another season of this show that mm-hmm. like they believe they are making a sacrifice that they may not come back from it was earned her sacrifice yeah. was earned no, no, quite right my gut reaction is to assume that it's going to be the quest to get Eleven back. Because yeah, now the, the new group of four know that Eleven's in there and they know what this place is. She now needs rescuing and that's going to be yeah. our... Yeah. I, um, I, I feel like I'm they... a sacrificial victim, child. You're it, Troy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the essence of this sort of closing argument for me of the, the final episode is it comes down to the idea that what we're anchored by at the end of the day is is love and the, the connections that we have with other people and whatever world we are going to belong to, that's what kind of fixes us to that world. Hmm. Yeah, that that's a pretty good summary, I think. I did want to draw a parallel to something at the end of this that's just like a comparison to a different piece of media. You know that scene we get right at the end when Will coughs up the slug thing into the sink Mm. and we get our like, oh, this is going to be a plot point for season two. Um, 
it reminded me a huge amount of the ending of the 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 2003 video game i think beyond good and evil in the have you ever mentioned beyond good and evil before i don't think i've mentioned it on one of the shows you've uh, that i've done with you i don't think do you like beyond good and evil because I, I, yeah, I, I i do <laughs> but there is a very 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 similar ending and tease for the sequel going on which mm-hmm. is person who has been captured by monstrous alien species and has barely survived and made it back home eventually discovers that they are in su- to some degree infected by the thing that held them captive and that that's your stinger to set up season two. I very much enjoyed that as an ending to Stranger Things because it's the ending that was teased in the first Beyond Good and Evil and we never got a proper direct sequel to explain that ending and I'm now quietly hoping maybe Stranger Things season 2 will scratch that itch of me never getting a proper Beyond Good and Evil (laughs) (laughs) it does it is a really important thing to to put on the end of a a journey like that though because this idea that that you can go through horrendous terrible things and then Mm. get back to your normal life and actually it will seem as though nothing ever happened and everything's fine is is not the case those things are now part of you i'm thinking of a very specific character at this point frodo beggins mm-hmm. mentioned in their one, yeah. of their one of their hobbit books um but uh, yeah the, the idea that that frodo's come brushed so close to the shadow that he's taken part of it with him and um it can't be fully cleansed away yeah. Which means that he will, like all the other kids, just settle down and they carry on being hobbits and he's separated from them in some capacity. So mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that would have been, you know, if, again, if this had only been one season, that would have been kind of an unsettling but I'll bittersweet end, like <laughs> bittersweet ending. I mean, it doesn't have to resolve itself yeah. neatly in a bowl. No. So basically, um, I'm just happy that season two of this show is hopefully going to basically be my Beyond Good and Evil sequel that never happened. (laughs) It's like, oh, what what does this character that turns out to have been infected by the thing that they we thought they'd escaped by? What does that sequel look like? I I sure haven't been waiting for like a decade and a half to find out. (laughs) (laughs) At least we won't get like a a Stranger Things season two promo trailer in about eight years time, which never gets followed up on. And then eventually they do a prequel. And (laughs) (sighs) yeah. Well, my main Laura hope... was convinced for a while that she was beyond good and evil too, because that's it's the only explanation <laughs> yeah. for, for, for her for her adoration of that thing, and like uh, that all of the concentration of willing it into being was in her body, and uh, then suddenly that externalized into this prequel thing. So yeah, beyond, uh, so uh, Stranger Things, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I I just hope that. The, the second series of Stranger Things sees a wonderful divorce between Karen and Ted because I feel we haven't Ted, that's his name, I never picked up precisely, on his name precisely thing. my point he's such a nothing of a man I, he's that guy why who have we not discussed Karen the fact that Karen Wheeler the, the lock pick queen of, of Indiana is married to the most beige most awful <laughs> Terrible, terrible microwave meal of a man that is Ted Wheeler. <laughs> Why can we not get a glory? I want. I mean, Karen Wheeler should have her own show. She's clearly the best mother in the world. She can pick. Oh, obviously. Lots, 
She's phenomenal. I mean, and she lives with she a man. She has a weird obsession with her daughter's sex life. Well, yeah, but that's mothers for you. That that, that happens. That's normal. That's fine. What was your mother like? I was going to say, it's not my mother. Yeah, for mine. No, oh, well, okay. Sorry, Mum. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on, as it appears that I've insulted my mother in some unheard of fashion. But, I mean, just the weirdest pairing in the world, isn't it? Surely. It's just a tad odd. Can we not come back to Series 2 to find Karen Wheeler is running her own government agency and Ted Wheeler is living, I don't know, in a wheelie bin dead? I mean, that I, would just I that would be fine. I expect to see I mean. the fanfic guy. I, it's interesting. I was discussing this with some um, very, very smart, uh, very um, aware 12-year-old, rough, uh, 12, 13-year-olds 13, yeah. talking about Stranger Things, and they were they were commenting on why... You know, why are most of the adults in this useless? And you know, yes, they, they yes. couldn't understand it. And I said, Ah, they're they're eighties TV and movie parents. That's that's exactly what they are. Of course they're oblivious and clueless and utterly unhelpful. <laughs> Well, we return to what I originally said about the uh, the uh, the first networks that the Duffer Brothers took this to, saying, "Well, you can't make this a movie, like a, a production about children. No one can relate to children. Um, w- children in horror movies is something that rarely gets, like, as in, like usually there's a spooky child that an adult has to deal with, but like a horror movie starring children doesn't actually happen as often as you might imagine because it's hard to write children, it's hard to direct children." And children are vulnerable, and they feel like no one bloody listens to them, which is the perfect condition for a horror movie. It is for an ongoing horror, rather than a you know idiots go to a cabin and then get you know attacked by a thing. This is like something that like children are investigating, and they can become mini detectives. I love that kind of thing. It is, but and... we're going back to the the problem that about it. We're talking about it again. That you know when they tried to turn that into a TV miniseries. The major issue with the networks with that was was we can't show children in peril, and that's yeah. what that's why the original miniseries struggled initially to find yeah. someone to commission and broadcast this show because the notion of children in peril was just an absolute no no, and of course that's just such an intrinsic part of it, and in and, yeah. and, and even an the, intrinsic the part form- of things. Yeah, the form it came out in, it, it is very blunted. It's, I mean, I, I personally like it. I think it's not a bad interpretation, but it is very blunted. The original miniseries. It's the most it could do with the material it had, given yeah. the world it was trying to produce this miniseries within. I mean, it, you know, it, it just wasn't allowed. You couldn't tell that well, kind of story. Not ready. No, which is kind of bizarre because as we say, you know, we we've all been children that have felt that sense of peril, that sense of danger. It's a very potent, wonderful thing. You know, the ch- the child in peril is actually such a potent source for horror and drama. All of those systems that are supposed to keep us safe for society actually end up being obstacles to the kids yeah, actually precisely. being able to Absolutely. defeat whatever um, it you is. Know, we can relate to that as kids, we can relate to that as adults because we were those kids that felt we weren't safe. Yeah. Yeah. And what better way to communicate that sense of helplessness to your adult audience than by reminding them, hey, once upon a time you were this short, your arms yeah. were that skinny. Do you remember when you felt you had no one to turn to because the adults didn't get it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And thus the importance of older siblings as well. They, uh, yeah. That comes in repeatedly. Indeed. So it's, like, it's like this bridge between, you know, because mm. they still don't have that full adult privileges, but they've been around more than the kids. Yeah. So. They can just about remember the feelings of helplessness mm. and they've just about caught the coattails of having some control of the world. And I think they will iron out a lot of the... Um, the, the, the creases of the like because this is a really solid first season and the second season could you know how like you, you watch a first season and they're like right this is really good and then the second season boom they knock it out of the park because suddenly they know what they're dealing with mm. i'm hoping fingers crossed that we get one of them well this is the bends as opposed to you know pablo honey isn't it this is this is this is where they kind of know the story they're going to be telling they know they, they know the, the scope uh, they have, and they can they can stretch their their story accordingly. Hopefully, I'm thinking of a uh, Battlestar Galactica. Like the first season was good, the second season they really knew what they were doing. Yeah. Like that by that point, they sort of stretched that one out. Um, so yeah, uh, and okay. <laughs> I can only imagine that the second season of Firefly would have been quite good as well. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, right, so any more on the entirety of Stranger Things? Uh, yeah, if you want to like pull from any episode that we've forgotten at any point. I, I wanted to mention, I did ask a question on Twitter, and I don't know if this is something you have much to say on, but I was oh, sure. I was curious about um, how this... I mean, I mean and we've discussed, you know, a very good show and all that, but um, was th- were there things that maybe didn't resonate with you as you... As much being being that you're British, and it's it's oh, wow. set in America, were there things that, not that you didn't get, but that didn't didn't resonate like it seemed like maybe it should have. It didn't hit that nostalgia button. Yeah, not really. No, because I, I grew up watching ET. I was just going to say, yeah, I think that the fact that what they're referencing, and and actually this is possibly a strength of the fact that they're a little bit too young to have actually been alive in that era. Mm. They are referencing the media that replicates that mm. era, not Rather that than era, era itself, itself. Yeah. which yeah. means it actually has a far wider reach because it doesn't just get people who were kids in Midwestern America between mm. 1982 and 1986. It gets everybody who's ever seen that replicated. Yeah, it's not. It's not talking about 1983, it's talking about, you know, John Carpenter and Stephen King and David Cronenberg and, yeah. and all the things that actually have become our Bible. It's not, think, yeah, it's not the real yeah. world. I think that's really telling because I was, I was asking this during the last episode we recorded was, I wasn't alive during this era, but it still feels very familiar and felt very... Mm. It felt very much like it was authentic, and I didn't know how it felt authentic because I hadn't lived through that era. But because you'd think seen all the good movies, that's, well, that's why it, it feels absolutely it feels so that's... authentic to media I've seen that was made mm-hmm. in that era. It doesn't necessarily yeah. feel authentic to the era, but it feels authentic to media from the era. Yeah. Mm. So that's the test case, then, Laura. You couldn't possibly have known that era and that I, place. I was born in and England Debbie, you in were, you were there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it felt real to both of you. So however they've managed that, they it succeeded, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Probably best to round up with... Boil it down to one favourite character and why in a brief little soundbite, starting with Sharon. Uh, I am going to say my favourite character is... We're going to get a whole bunch of L's, aren't we? (laughs) My favourite character is 
L um, for all of the reasons that I loved Carrie when I was a teenager. It's selfish, but that, there it is. Uh, Laura? I have to agree with Sharon. Eleven, to me, is the standout, um, both in terms of performances and in terms of just... She embodies so... She embodies such a wonderful journey of learning about the world and realizing, like, what she values and taking her life into her own hands that I just think is beautifully handled. She's wonderful and I just want to watch her, like, save people from falling off of cliffs forever. See, now I literally just want to copy-paste everything you just said, because it's, it's summed it up so beautifully. Um, yeah, me, I'm, I'm the same with Elle uh, for, for the exact same reason, uh, purely because she learns so much of, about the world from the boys and can at the same time filter out what she thinks is important and what, what she thinks isn't important, and she puts together her own system of ethics. Mm. Um, Through observation yeah, she's, and trial she, and error. She's a fantastic character. I, I also, um, I mean, all of the kids are great. Mm. But um, but yeah, Elle's El, El special. Uh, uh, Debbie? Oh, I, I have to say, I, I will uh, depart from the trend. Uh, Dusty is, Thank you. is <laughs> my, my favorite. I, I yeah. adore him. He's so, he's so smart and so funny, and but so lovable. And he's... He doesn't take shit from his friends. He doesn't get into the bickering. But he's... I just want to hug him and squeeze his cheeks. He's so adorable. <laughs> I, I'm pretty it also feels like a very natural performance from, from that actor. It feels like he's only like a 1% different from that guy in real life. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. I, I flip between Dustin and Eleven, depending on which day you ask me. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> in the last episode we, we recorded yesterday, I said Dustin was my favorite character, I think. So. <laughs> I, I think you did, yes. <laughs> yeah. Depends on the day. Depends on the day. <laughs> Karen? Uh, Steve Harrington. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. That's, that's, no, no I, I, it's Dustin, actually. It's um, The thing is that... One thing that I love about all of the kids is that they're all very kind and very empathetic, and Dustin, as the party cleric, is the most kind and the most empathetic, I think, of all of them. He's consistently looking for ways to make people better. He's the catalyst that, I think, causes a lot of other characters to be better versions of themselves. So, Guy, who's yours? I'm going to say Karen Wheeler, because I'm not going to say Eleven or Dustin there, although obviously they are the clearly the correct choices. I'm going to say Karen Wheeler, Peter, because she puts up with Ted. (laughs) (laughs) She's the most amazing, amazing woman in the world, and she's obviously got a whole series that actually was her, and we never got to see that. Karen Wheeler, Spy, we never got to see that phenomenal show <laughs> of That's series with this kind of microwave meal of a man by drinking Chardonnay at lunchtime Constantly. or breakfast even in order to, to live with this creature that exists in cardigans and, and Farrah slacks but you know Karen Wheeler Karen Wheeler is obviously the best character in the whole show I did notice that actually when they're sat there having dinner and everybody else is on the iced tea and she's got this massive glass of wine in front of her <laughs> Well, of course she has. You know, she's got to get through a day somehow. Mm. It's fair enough. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Series 2 is actually entirely about her. And we're all going to be wrong-footed. We've all had the, the footage, the apocalyptic sky, the kids on their bikes. But no, it's going to be Karen Willis' spine. It's going to be amazing. 
Yeah, uh, Guy, yes, aside from sorry. Karen Wheeler spy fanfic, uh, yeah, what, what? <laughs> uh, what other books can can people... I mean, obviously people want to check out your uh, Stranger Things book. You want to talk about that well, one first and other don't. things they might like? Um, um, I suspect they might. Look, let's mention the change. <laughs> it's it's a book... It's, it's, a, it's a trilogy of books I've just just been released here in the uk which are never going to sell and so i will desperately try and encourage people to please god buy them because it's a little weird ambitious project i have of a whole series of novellas that discuss a worldwide weird apocalypse and it's the most ambitious thing i've ever done and therefore obviously it will die on its ass but if people are foolish enough to consider Your trying... publicist has her work cut out for <laughs> Oh, I, I've got through two publicists through this entire, entire process, bless them, and yes, they have. But yeah, it's a series of novellas. It's all about uh, when something weird happens in our world and the people that have to survive it. And it's called The Change. And the first three books are out now and another three are out in October. God, I feel like an American. I was so good at publicising myself then. I'm English. We don't do that. <laughs> English people just go embarrassed and just go, oh, I, I, I've written some things. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but yes, please, buy the change. Keep me in cat food. Okay, so Laura, where can people find your um, the stuff that you're very proud of? Me and my various things. You can find most of it at Laura K Buzz pretty much everywhere. That's Laura K Buzz on Twitter, YouTube, Patreon. That's the one that pays the bills. All of my video game stuff usually ends up on letsplayvideogames.com or anywhere else that will pay me to write. Uh, the big thing I had this week is I had a thing go up on IGN about... Uh, the accidental headcanons that can come out of mistakes in character creators. So go give that a read. <laughs> okay. Um, and Kaoru and Debbie, do you want to go together or do you want to go se they're separate things? Um, I'll do my thing and then she's just starting her own projects. Uh, so, I'm alright. Um, you can find us both at sequentially-yours.com um, I have several shows delving deep into comic books, comic book movies, comic books themselves, doing close readings, that sort of stuff. By the time this comes out, hopefully I'll have at least a couple of videos on Valerian, which I'm super excited about. If you're into comics and you want to just talk about kind of how they work as literature, that's sequentially yours. Uh, you could. The main place to find me is on Twitter. Um, I, I believe I'm... I'm either Debbie Morse or Best at 8300 on Twitter, and I'm I'm trying very slowly, but trying to get a YouTube channel called Hats Off, off the ground. Uh, I'm talking about talking about things I love. Um, we should soon have a video about Baby Driver up there. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of delving into some of what went on in that movie. Yeah. Nice. So. And if I'm going to pitch anything, it's going to be a proud introduction and invitation for you guys to come and check out my brand new website. It's a showcase for my sci-fi, alt-history, fantasy books and audio dramas, as well as a gallery for the amazing artwork by Antonio Torrezen. So if you like what I have to say about character and storytelling in any medium, and you want to read and hear what I've done with what I've learned, you want to get engrossed in a rich new world of mystery and suspense, you want to go along to NewCenturyMultiverse.com. It's 1873, and the Earth isn't doing so well. It's been ten years since the portals opened and the Wendigo first prowled among us. 
their infectious bite left the human race in tatters. Over here in Washington, we're trying our best to bring things back together. It hasn't been easy. But today, we met some folks who just might be able to help. There is a force at work inside my body which I must unlock. Will you teach me? Of course I will. You are the child of the prophecy. Really? No! Prophecy. <laughs> you jackass. Everybody, hold on real hard to the person next to you. This journey is about something more than just saving the world. This is about reminding the world why it's worth saving in the first place. And how were we ever supposed to accomplish that? I've never known friends like you before. If I was gonna build a family, these would be the components I'd need. When people are down, when they're scared and divided, when they want to curl up and die because things have gotten so bad, how the hell else are we gonna pick them back up again? We give them heroes. Steamheart. We found something out there. Or, more specifically, it found us. You were warned not to venture into these lands. Wait, hold on. I can explain. No, I can't. Run! A huge thank you to our special patrons at the $15 level this month. That's Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Timothy Green, David Garcia Abril, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. If you want to hear even more of us chatting about Stranger Things, this particular episode ran really long, and there was quite a bit of going off on tangents and mucking about, and that is all in an hour and 17 minutes long episode of Cutting Class. That's our Deleted Scenes podcast, and that is available to everyone who supports us for $5 or more on Patreon. Many thanks again to Stephen Maxwell Lowe, Toby Jungius, Nick Grugin, and Joel Robinson, if a bunch of people want to club together again around November time, we might just do a Stranger Things Season 2 show. And Laura Kate Dell will return to this podcast very soon when we will be talking about To The Moon. Which is an amazing video game and I recommend every single one of you buy it and play it to completion on Steam. It's going to cost you about 10 bucks and about 4-5 to five hours, but do it all in one play session. And don't let anyone spoil what happens because it's brilliant. And to play us out, this is an amazing cello trio medley of Stranger Things music performed by Nicholas Yee, Adam Caulfield, and Catherine Purnell. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's out. out. What's pudding? Pudding, it's, it's this charcoal gooey with a spoon. Don't worry, when all this is over, you won't have to keep eating junk food and leftovers like a dog anymore. My mom... She's a pretty awesome cook. She can make you whatever you like. Eggos? Well, yeah, eggos, but real food, too. See, I was thinking, once all this is over and Will's back and you're not a secret anymore, my parents can get you an actual bed for the basement. Or you can take my room if you want, since I'm down there all the time anyways. My point is, they'll take care of you. They'll be like your new parents, and Nancy, she'll be like your new sister. Will you be like my brother? 
What? No. No. Why no? Because... Because it's different. Why? I mean, I don't know. I guess it's not. It's stupid. Mike. Yeah? Friends don't lie. Well... I was thinking... I don't know. Maybe we can go to the snowball together. Snowball? It's this cheesy school dance where you go in the gym and dance to music and stuff. I've never been, but I know you're not supposed to go with your sister. No. I mean, you can, but it'd be really weird. You go to school dances with someone that, you know, someone that you like. A friend? Not a friend. Uh, 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 someone like a...